The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing your nation's public radio source for the advice, news, tips, techniques, and strategies you need to build your own financial independence with real estate investing. And we're coming up on the week of meetings here in Ohio. The the uh, Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati meets tomorrow evening with a very special national guest, Mr. Anthony Chara, who was uh, here on Real Life Real Estate right around a month ago, I believe this is the beginning of April, uh, talking about his adventures in apartment investing. And that's exactly what he's going to discuss tomorrow night at Cincinnati RIA. Uh, it is a guest night. So the meeting is open to all. Uh, you can get more information about that at CincinnatiRIA.com. That's Cincinnati R E I a.com tonight is cincinnati ria's monthly wholesaling focus group the topic tonight is what buyers want and that is open to all members of cincinnati ria it's held at foley's on benson street in redding ohio you get more information about that as well at cincinnatiria.com Next Tuesday is the Central Ohio Real Estate Entrepreneurs meeting up in Columbus, Ohio, where the main meeting is is uh, with Columbus Metropolitan Housing Association, CMHA, talking about the Section 8 program. There are early meetings at 6 o'clock about the role of the title agency in your deal and also what it really takes to start and run a fund. You can get more information about that at centralohioria.com. Our topic today is finding the right tenant for your unit because as any longtime landlord knows, a vacancy is actually less expensive and less stressful than a tenant who is destructive or problematic or does not pay their rent or deals drugs or raises pit bulls or anyone of a long list of horror stories that I'm sure we could all tell each other about tenants that were improperly screened and chosen. My guest today is Jim Shapiro, sometime host of Real Life Real Estate Investing, past president of the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati, full-time property manager and landlord himself. And uh, Jim, we're talking today about finding the right person, finding the right applicant amongst all those applicants that, that we might have for any given vacancy. So let's start out with what is, what's the right tenant? What, what do we mean when we're saying we want to put the right person in there? Who is the right person? 
Uh, Ideally, the right person is they can afford the rent and they'll take care of everything and never call you. (laughs) Okay. And then what can we actually expect? (laughs) Well, that that is the the exception. Uh, Occasionally I get them. And it's funny because I'll get them in every price range and every kind of area. Sometimes you get those wonderful tenants. And you can also have horrible tenants in every price range in every area. Uh, I guess the the key, you know, and I always add to tenant screening, it's finding the right tenant and staying within the bounds of fair housing law. Uh, it's finding people without getting yourself in trouble because mm-hmm. uh, fair housing law plays a part in really our whole approach to finding tenants. Mm-hmm. So as we're discussing the specifics of, of, of how to basically screen these folks is, is, is what we're talking about. Uh, we do not want anyone to hear that the right person is a person of a particular race, sex, color, religion, uh, a handicapped person, a non-handicapped person. Uh, and, and of course, there's different protected classes in different places all over the United States. And our right. listeners need to know who the protected classes are. Uh, in their area as well, but uh, nothing that you hear today should be construed as, ooh, I get to pick the tenant of the color I want if I do these things, because that, that's not what it is about at all. It's about finding the person who will take care of your unit and who will pay their rent and who will maintain a reasonable uh, sort of customer business person relationship with you. Now, Unfortunately, Jim, as I, I think you have discovered during your, uh, what, going on a decade now of... 11, 12 years almost. <laughs> of, yeah, of landlording, um, many people will come to your unit and they will present themselves in a particular way and you will be very convinced that that person is going to be an awesome candidate and really deserve to live in your unit and can really afford it and then you find out otherwise. And let's talk about the find out otherwise. The subtitle part. to finding the perfect tenant is, a, is a, I call it the game of find the lie. Because people are very good at deceiving landlords about themselves and their situation. And you know the, the good tenants are good. The, the, the other tenants are the ones we have to screen for. And some of them are, are really good at what they do uh we you know we, we joke the way to tell a tenant or an applicant is lying is their lips are moving uh and it's it's sad and yet in our business that's got to be the approach we bring to it because it's it takes real effort to find uh, and sort out what's really going on mm-hmm. we do a lot of cross-checking uh, i manage uh, units for other people over 150 units I've got to put good people in or I'm going to have a really unhappy customers. And we work hard. We can spend three, four, five, six hours screening tenants. Now, part of it depends on how how quickly we get phone calls back. Are we able to get a phone call back uh, from prior landlords and from employers? Uh, and, you know, I have some tenants. They'll give us an application. I'm an hour contacted landlords, employers, they provided pay stubs, everything makes sense, their public records are clear, and I can give them an answer right then. 
Uh, more often than not, it's taking time because the, la- the prior landlord doesn't call back. The landlord before that doesn't call back. Uh, it's nice to get the landlord before the current landlord because the current landlord, if they don't want them, if they're a horrible tenant, current landlord's got a real incentive to give them a positive reference so that I'll take them. So I really like to hear from the prior landlord. And there's other factors. If you know they've been in the current place for five years, it's one picture. If they've been in the current place for a year, it's another. Yeah, I don't know. You know, and I want to know how long were they at the one before, because the ones that change landlords every year, yeah, that's too expensive. <laughs> the problem is the good tenants sound really good, and the bad tenants sound really good. Because if they didn't sound good, if they didn't know what to say and didn't know what to put on their applications and so on, they wouldn't be anyone's tenants. Well. <laughs> you you and I have both had the experience of having a tenant uh, that, that was a horror story that, that uh, did everything you would not want them to do. And then next thing you know, they've moved out into another rental property and you say, how did they... How did that happen? How did they find a place to live? How did that landlord not call for a reference and hear that this person did $10,000 worth of damage to the house and hasn't paid rent in four months and has tied us up in court at every turn? And and the answer is people don't know how to take those steps to screen. And the, and the tenants know this. And what we're here to do today is to teach the audience how to keep the from having the wool pulled over your eyes by people who know the system better than you do. We will get into some specifics about that right after we take a quick break. Also going to invite you to contact us with your tenant questions or problems for that matter at 877-772-9658 or by going to askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Jim Shapiro. We're talking about some tricks that tenants will play on you and things that you should be doing to avoid having the wool pulled over your eyes uh, because it is unfortunately often the case that landlords will believe a sad story from a tenant and not do the checking they should do. And then guess what? That tenant turns out to be very problematic. So, um, Jim, I think that the, the the whole process here does start with an application. What What is what is the minimum that a landlord should be asking in an application from a potential tenant? Everything you could ever want to know about their history. Uh you know, I want their address, their social security number, their date of birth, because that's how you verify on the public records or a credit report who they are. You want prior landlords, current and prior landlords. I try to get at least two uh, landlords or going back five years. A five-year tenancy counts as you know, a bonus. Uh, employer, current and, and prior. And then, you know, do they have dogs? There's certain questions you can ask and certain questions you are not allowed to ask. Uh, you can ask how many adults will live in the house. You can ask how many total people will live in the house, but you can't ask how many children will live in the house. Uh, you can't ask anything about children. If you say how many people live in the house, eight out of ten people will tell you their kids, their kids' names, their kids' age. Even when I say, oh, no, I don't need that information, you know, they want to share it. So if they all, if they volunteer it, that's fine. I don't 
allow that to be part of my criteria uh, because familial status, you know, children or pregnancy is a protected class under fair housing. So I want to get all this information once, and I want to have a clause that should have been written by an attorney, the last thing above their signature, where it says, I give you permission to verify everything I told you, to verify anything I didn't tell you, to contact all my employers, my creditors, my uh, landlords, past, present, or future, and to do this as needed for anything relating to our current, our, the business relationship we would enter into. In other words, if they move out and they owe me $5,000, I want to be able to pull their credit report in two years and find out where they moved to. And that's some specific language that should be in there that says I have the right to do that. Otherwise, you know, I'm breaking the law. And then I want to screen all that. And I want to screen it as finely as I can. I want to, and I'll talk a little bit about how. Uh, I want to verify the landlord really owns the property using the local, uh, here it's called the auditor, the real estate records. I want to, if the landlord doesn't own the property, I want to ask a question about that when I'm either talking to the landlord or talking to the tenant. Sometimes there's a property manager, there's a reason the owner isn't the one you're calling. Other times the phone number they're giving you is their best friend. Oh yeah, they're a great tenant. You want to ask kind of trick questions. They said they're paying 700 a month Ask that landlord, so they're paying 800 a month? And you know the real landlord will know that that's wrong. Their best friend who's just taking the phone call probably won't. If there's another name and they're taking the answers, the calls for the owner, ask them who they are. Why are they, you know, how long have they owned the property? I don't tell them right away I know they don't own it. I ask them, how long have they owned it? Sometimes they'll just start making things up. <laughs> then you say, well, What's your relationship to Joe Smith? They say, who's Joe Smith? Says, well, the auditor says Joe Smith owns that property. Now, now you've caught a lie. Because here's the key thing to know. If the applicant lies to you before they owe you money, how can you expect them not to lie to you after they owe you money? Once they're in your house, you're stuck with them for a while. And it can be expensive. And, you know, there's. when I first started in the business, people said to me, a bad tenant's better than uh, an empty unit's better than a bad tenant. I didn't quite get it. After you do it for a while, you, you feel that in your gut. You know why? Because a bad tenant's going to damage. They're going to not pay rent. They're going to have neighbor complaints. They're going to do all sorts of things. And you know you'd be better off having the unit vacant. Going back in. There's nothing more expensive in our business than turning over a vacant a house after someone moves out. Paint, carpet. Damages, you know, they are the uh, the the killer for us. And if a tenant doesn't last three years, I don't think you can make money on a rental. You need a three-year tenancy. So short-term tenants and and abusive tenants are just a guarantee for your, you'll have bigger expenses than you'll have profits. The next biggest mistake that I see landlords making, other than just not screening their tenants at all, or just taking, taking... On that subject, by the way, screening... I have maybe 10 calls a year from people asking for landlord references, maybe 15 a year. I've had hundreds of tenants in the last decade, and some were pretty nasty. I have... It is so rare that people call. So that screening piece is huge, because you're pretty well guaranteed that the way they treated the landlord, 
the last landlords, how they're going to treat you. People don't change. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you yeah, off. It's amazing. You let a guy host a show a couple of times, then he just interrupts you on your own, <laughs> on your own program. It's like crazy. Um, train of thought. Where'd it go? Okay, so the, the, not screening uh, their tenants or at least not following up on what the tenant has told them is far and away the biggest mistake that landlords make. But on the flip side, we also meet landlords who are they're looking for a tenant that doesn't exist. They they want they want someone who's got an 800 credit score, has been at the same job for 25 years, um, uh, has never paid a, a, a bill late, um, makes nine times the amount of the monthly payment. In other words, they are looking for someone who is like them to live in a rental property that is not like in a place where they live. And so I think the, the, the question has to be, given that most of the tenants that we screen are not financially perfect people. <laughs> they're not they're not always behaviorally perfect people. They'll have little misdemeanors and things like that. What is the combination of things that predicts success? Yeah, what what are things that if you look at them on a on a on an application or more likely it's not on the application but you find it out later, you say, "Oh, no way, this person just is not going to make it as a successful tenant? I think you know, the number one is prior landlord references. Because I'll have people that I'll look at and our target is three times the rent is their monthly income. And I'll see people that have two and a half or two and a quarter and I'm thinking they just shouldn't you know, be able to afford this apartment. And I'll call the prior landlord who was, and they were charged paying $25 more and they say, they were wonderful. They were never late in seven years. You know, there are some people who are like that. Uh, I see that more among older generation where their whole attitude about their bills and their money is, is sometimes different than younger generation. Uh, but sometimes I'm just shocked that I can, be again, be sure if they took good care of the last house and they always paid the rent on time, Unless their life changed, their employment changed, they're probably going to treat me the same. Okay. So basically, number one predictor is their past behavior right. in regards to their rental properties. Um, what about things like credit score? We often pull a credit report. I used to do that for everybody. I don't do that as often now because so many people, their credit is is so bad and when they're applying for a, a low-income rental or a Section 8 rental, I know I'm going to see a bad credit score. I don't, even, I don't even get the credit score. I look at their credit habits. You know, I don't pay much attention to medical bills or to student loans. Uh, I do pay attention to they have uh, owe money to four different cell phone companies and two different cable companies and uh, they didn't pay library fines, and they're now $300, and they Columbia House records. Uh, does that still exist? It still does, and, and I see tenants <laughs> who are running up big bills on getting movies and never pay for them. It's, uh, the, I want to see their patterns of bad spending, and are they things that I think are, gonna be, are an indicator that they're not responsible with money, because then they're not going to be responsible to me. Uh, owing money to Duke or to the utility company 
is a, is a big sign. You know, sometimes we'll see people they moved out of a house, they eat, they got sued in a judgment for eighteen hundred dollars. You know, they didn't pay their Duke bill. Well, I don't want them living in my house and not paying for their their gas and electric. Uh, I don't want them living in my house and and not paying. Because that's also a sign they probably didn't pay the water bill. But the water bills don't sue the tenants; they sue the owners. Uh, so I look at I look at their their patterns of spending uh, more than their credit score. What about people who have crimes? It seems to me like we see an awful lot of minor things, jaywalking, um, uh, failure to to stop at a stop sign through the middle of, uh, they'll have an illegal possession. They they were caught with with a pot pipe through jail terms for dealing drugs. I mean, there's the whole spectrum of things, but it, it's it's fairly rare in, in a lot of the properties I own that you see somebody with a completely clean legal record. It's really, a, again, a matter of uh, a big picture. You know, someone had one misdemeanor arrest, okay. Someone who's got 17, you know, and somewhere in the middle, because most of us don't have 17 arrests on our record, and they'll say, oh, but none of those were convictions. Well, if they got arrested 17 times, but or, or you know six times, eight times, and what are is it for? Uh, you know, possession's a funny one. I've had people, I'm able to log in and see what their crimes were, which they don't always know. Uh, that sometimes they'll say possession. I'll say, what were you possessing? Oh, some marijuana. Then I log in and they were possessing crack cocaine or heroin, uh, paraphernalia. Now, is that rolling papers? Or is it syringes and spoons? Uh, and they'll typically lie about it, especially if it's syringes and spoons. They'll say, oh, it was some rolling papers they found in my car when I got pulled over. And I log in and see, oh, you got pulled over with, you know, crack cocaine. A meth cocaine, lab in your backseat. Uh, <laughs> syringes, you know, because I don't want heroin addicts uh, or crackheads. So those are those are real warning signs. But I'm, but I'm hearing that potheads are okay. Well, that would if I didn't have people smoking pot, I'd probably knock out about 40 to 60% of our tenants. <laughs> It is illegal. That's right. The real story here on Real Life Real Estate. It is illegal. Ladies and gentlemen. And yet we all know it's <laughs> it's more widely used than, uh, than people like to admit. Uh, but, you know, I, I look at you know, certain crimes, uh, you know, after hours in the park. It means they're either in the park dealing drugs or prostitution. Uh, I've now learned the trick. You Google the phone number and you find the prostitutes. <laughs> Uh, I had one a couple months ago. I called the landlord. He, I said, how is this lady? Oh, he, he had a lot of bad things to say. Then he said, Google her phone number, and that'll answer all your questions. And, you know, there she was on six different websites as a prostitute. Interesting. Pregnant, no less. Interesting. So we're trying to um, to walk this line where we know that our our tenants are not necessarily always going to be perfect people and and by the way listeners don't don't assume that as jim is telling these stories he's telling them about entirely his low-income rentals there this is this is true across the economic spectrum that you're going to find people with very questionable uh pasts credit records uh etc i i uh, know that uh jim told me a story not too long ago about a very expensive rental that he had that one of the applicants was um Let's just say had many legal and financial issues that they were trying to 
cover up. That was that was quite a story. Uh, Seventeen hundred fifty dollar house in uh, Liberty Township in our area, which is a very nice modern uh, community, newer homes, uh, suburban. He was a doctor, uh, so he called himself, and what he didn't want his name on the application because he was getting a loan to build a to open his own clinic. Turns out he was a chiropractor, and he didn't want any debt on his name, so it was going to be on his wife's name. But I got his name, and I went home and I Googled it, uh, and I looked in the clerk of courts. He'd been uh, he had a judgment last fall from a jewelry store for ten thousand dollars. He was sued two weeks earlier by an accounting firm for not paying a bill. He was. There was a lawsuit in another county over some sexually inappropriate actions with a patient. And then it went on. There was a, a, a newer one of that same sort of stuff that was 35 pages. And then there's lots of – when you Google people's names, you get lots of things. And the, the stories just went on. Uh, now, I didn't have an application from him, so I couldn't reject him on the basis of this. Mm-hmm. And I enforced our policy that all adults over the age of 18 must fill out the application. When he refused to do that, I didn't have to accept their application. And it's always a big sign, big sign, when someone says, oh, yes, this person who's here with me isn't going to be on the application because yeah. fill in the blank. I mean, a lot of times the story is, oh, uh, he's not going to be living here or uh, like you said, he's got this other financial thing that he's trying to do. I don't know that I've ever had that happen when the real reason that they didn't want to be on the application was because the application was going to be rejected if they were on the application. So, yes, if an adult's going to be living there, you need to know what what activities that adult has been engaged in. We need to take a quick break. You can ask any questions you have about tenant screening at 877-772-9658. Or by going to our website at askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're talking today about trying to find out what you're really getting in the way of your applicant and then being realistic about weighing the pros and cons of any individual applicant and not expecting uh, the moon because uh, you, you're not you're not typically going to get it. My guest today is Jim Shapiro. Jim is also the early speaker at the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati meeting tomorrow evening. Uh, That is, again, a meeting that is open to the public. We have a special guest coming in from Colorado, Anthony Chara, to talk about apartments. So if you're going to own apartments, obviously you are going to screen tenants. So Jim will be talking in detail about how to do that. And I believe Jim uh, handing out a form that we can't hand out on the radio because the technology just isn't there yet where we can just hold it up to the microphone and people get it. And that form uh, is a really useful one because it, it helps you numerically weigh out what you're getting in a tenant. It's an objective system uh, so that you can be consistent. One of the things that's important in tenant screening is doing the same thing the same way and saying the same thing the same way to everyone. That way you can't be accused of discriminating. If you always ask the same questions in roughly the same order with the same tone of voice, because you can ask the same question and it can sound very different to the person listening 
And if you start giving people the impressions you're discriminating, there's lots of people out there who have no, you know, they know they can call up Housing Opportunities Made Equal or their local fair housing agency and say, I don't think I was treated right. And now you could have a, you know, and they, you know, our local uh, fair housing agency, they, they test people. They're all going in Craigslist and they're making random phone calls and checking landlords because they've checked us lots of times. Uh, and they know what we do and, and we have a good rep- reputation with them. So you know, I ask the same questions. What are you looking for? You know, what, what do you need? I want to try to you know, direct them to the right property. Uh, and then I ask them, what's your situation? And then I shut up. I want you know, them to tell me. I don't want to pick the answers I want. I want them to say, and you know, how many people were they? What neighborhoods they want to be in? What are they looking for? Why are they moving? Is a great question to ask. Uh, when do they want to move? There's things you know, other warning signs we talked about. Uh, I want to move in right away. Now, if they want to move in this weekend, you know, that's a bad sign. Most responsible people need to give a 30-day notice, and so they're looking and they're giving their notice. And then they're moving in a month. Uh, the people that need to move in tomorrow probably means they got evicted yesterday, and, <laughs> and they're, they're desperate. Set out on Monday, <laughs> and they know they're facing set out. Uh, I have a. I can give you three months rent up front, or I can give you a year's rent in advance. You know, those things scare me. Especially then they often want a discount. And my mortgage doesn't go down because you paid me the year's rent up front, so that doesn't work for me. Uh, you know, ask them. Ask them questions and then listen carefully. Uh, ask them you know, where they lived before, why, you know, what their situation was. Did they get their deposit back? Uh, that's an answer that you know, they're going to always say yes. Certain questions you can ask, and you know they're going to say yes because if you say anything else, they sound bad. Uh, but consistency. And then I have a, a two-step process for documenting. One is just a, it's a Word document. I open it up on my computer or on my desk, paper uh and uh, you know there's four headings you know employment uh public records uh prior landlord and credit and i just write down all the comments and all the notes i get and that's kind of free form and as we work through we'll keep adding to that the second page is a score sheet where there are certain uh yes no questions uh do they make three times the rent if no it's an automatic rejection uh, do they have a history of, uh, of violent crimes, drug crimes, sex crimes? I don't like theft either because I don't want them stealing from the neighbors. Now, those can be automatic rejections. Uh, then there's uh, they have a history of suing their landlord. Uh, we turned down someone today because she's currently suing her landlord. And, um, you know, Venus had a couple experiences. She was telling me that when she's approved people who sued their prior landlord, you know, they had a tendency to jump to court. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, that is not a protected class. We can reject people because they have a tendency to sue other people. Uh, there's no fair housing requirement that you accept people who like to sue. Uh, you can reject for a lot of reasons. Uh, you, know, you just can't reject for the ones that fair housing calls for. Uh, you can reject over income. You can make reasonable business decisions about your property. Uh, fair housing law doesn't prevent you from making good business decisions. You just need to know what they are and apply them consistently. And the and the consistency is the important thing. I mean, I, I know landlords who uh, do not allow smokers into their 
right. units. They just they say if if I do that, then this the the unit smells bad after that, and I have to paint it twice. And that's their choice. Smokers are not a protected class. So uh, as long as something does not fall within a protected class or doesn't doesn't tend to unduly influence a member, a member of a protected class. You know, you can't say, oh, well, uh, uh, their current unit needs to be spotless because somebody with five kids who wants to move into your four-bedroom unit is probably not going to have an absolutely spotless place that they live now. But really, even with all of this, all of this process that's happening up front where you're, you're, sort of, you're sort of marketing to them and letting them tell your story or tell you their story, the, the, the checking comes down to that application. I mean, that's that's the thing they fill out when they have decided that they do, in fact, want to, you know, take a chance and apply. And that's the thing they sign that says, I told you the truth. And and that is the thing that you're working off of as the um, the tenant sleuth, as the as the person who is is trying to see now is what I have been told accurate. So I am going to say to you some things that I have been lied to about on applications in writing even with a thing at the bottom that says, I absolutely swear all of this is true and signed by the tenant. And you tell me how somebody in the audience would find out that this is a lie. Okay. Okay. Um, current residents. That's a really common one. I've been at my, I've been at my place for, for seven years. Well, I, you know, aside from calling the landlord and then verifying with the auditor that the landlord they told us is the landlord and, you know, Googling phone numbers and Googling addresses, uh, the ne- will help that. The other is to go to the clerk of courts. In almost every county, uh, ha- our area here is great. All of our re- local counties in Ohio have online auditors and online clerk of courts. Kentucky, on the other hand, has almost no online resources, and it's a nightmare, and I don't work in Kentucky. <laughs> uh, when I get an out-of-state person, uh, they give me a city. I Google the city. Let's say it's Monroe, Utah. I Google Monroe, Utah, and the first thing or the second thing on the Google list is Wikipedia, and the first sentence will say Monroe, Utah is a city in the county of whatever county. Now I Google that county auditor and that county's clerk of court, and now I see whether they have online resources. Uh, I look at their 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 actions. You know, it might even be traffic tickets or anything that the clerk of courts has is the addresses. If I see they had an address, they said they lived two years with the current residence, and I see they had an eviction or a traffic ticket or a misdemeanor arrest or anything else at another address. Now I know they weren't at the current house for two years because they got evicted you know, 13 months ago at a different house. Mm-hmm. And those long, long occupancies uh, that are claimed on these things often turn out to be leaving holes. And it's not, it's often not the current residence. I've been in my current residence for a year and that's right. Prior to that, I lived in the last place I lived, which is this other address for 12 years. <laughs> but then when you start digging into the history, you find out that during that 12 years, they did in fact live there for a while. And were also evicted from six other places during that time, which is why they don't want you to, you know, know that they only lived in the, in the prior place. For three months. Okay, uh, how about this one? I've had this one come up before. Uh, lying about that I'm employed, who my employer is, uh, how many hours a month I actually get in at work, what my income is. That's gotten so much, well, easier and harder. The way we do it is we ask for copies of pay stubs. And 
many, many employers won't give you information anymore. And more and more landlords won't either, which is really frustrating. But employers have a lot, a lot. Now, I've got a clause on the back that says that they authorize me to do this. And you can also have a special form you send them with that authorization. Bottom line is when they turn in a pay stub and it's, you know, May, I can look at, depending on when that pay stub was from, I can, you know, calculate out what their income would have been for the year. I can, you know, look at their numbers. If they don't all add up to what they said on the application, then, you know, next. Also, we look at, when it comes to income, and people don't think about this, so you have to drag it out of them. We want to see all of their sources of income, even if it's Social Security, Social Security Disability, food stamps, Section 8, uh, child support, and make sure they're actually getting it. Ask to see the deposit slips or the bank record because 90% of people that tell me about food, uh, child support don't actually collect. Uh, you know, So i got to pull that out because they don't think that way. When I say, what's your income, they think of their job. And all that other stuff can mean another significant amounts of money into their household. So I ask them, what are all the sources of income in your house? And I give them examples. You know, their child's got Social Security. They've got a disability. They've got food stamps because that that all factors in. And I count what I estimate their Section 8 share of the rent would be as household income too. Okay. Biggest lie I've ever been told by a tenant. Oh. Gosh, then the list is so long. It is very long, but I mean, well, there was that great bravest one. <laughs> well, the greatest one was the doctor, who was opening his own clinic and couldn't. You know, when he really he had big issues. Uh, but he probably told you his correct name. That's I have had applications that came in that it turned out that the name on the the person I was looking at who said this is my application here it is was not, in fact, the person whose name and social security number appeared on the top of the application. How do you stop that lie in its tracks? Because you know there's a reason for that. Yeah. I mean, one way is you ask for a copy. You ask to see their driver's license. Or if they're faxing in information, they should fax a copy of the driver's license. The problem with that is so many of them are barely legible. Uh, And then it's, you know, verifying social security and uh, credit report is helpful on that. Credit reports help for getting aliases or prior names because they'll tell you their name is Mary Smith. Well, Smith was their married name. Then now they're going under Mary Jones uh, or vice versa. They'll give you their maiden name. Uh, they'll give you whichever name has less baggage. Uh, they'll give you their sister's name. They'll give you just a name. Sometimes they just make up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had people make up social security numbers. I've had people make up just about everything on the application at some point or other. I'll Google the address and find out it's a vacant lot uh, that they're currently living at, or their employer is at a vacant lot. Uh, I always Google the employer and find out both is the employer real and is the phone number for the employer the same phone number they gave me, or did they give me their girlfriend uh, to call up and verify employment? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then uh, so, uh, I might even call seniors. the real number if it's not matching. And and you know because I can do that because I've got the right to verify everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, juniors and seniors, I, I've seen that I've seen those social security numbers switched around a few times where it's the, it's the son. You, you can tell you can tell he's not sixty five, and yet when you run the social security number he gave you, you come up with a sixty five year old, and it's it's his father. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's it's unfortunate that the folks who are bad tenants and would have a difficult time finding a place to live, if 
so many people weren't so bad, such bad tenant screeners <laughs> are are so good at what they do. I mean, they they a, a lot of landlords, I think, go into this saying, "Well, yeah, somebody might lie to me, but they're not going to like lie about their name. They're not going to give me. They're not going to give me their brother's phone number for their employer. I mean, who does that? Well, the bad tenants do it. Right. That's the that's the important thing." To keep in mind, um, we have a question here from Mike, who is writing from Baltimore. He says, Jim, I'm hoping you can give me some suggestions because I'm walking a line here. I live on the lower level of a four family that I own. The people who live above me in the past have made lots of noise. I would really prefer to have people up there who were quiet, but I feel like if I put quiet in the ad, I could have some fair housing problems because it might indicate that I don't want children. Any suggestions about this? Carpet their floors or move it to the upstairs. <laughs> yeah, you move upstairs. That's <laughs> I've got a tenant... She's an owner, and she lives in a, a little multifamily. And when she moved in, I said, if you live upstairs, you won't have to hear the noise. Well, she wanted to live on the first floor, and now she's you know she's talking about insulating the ceilings and insulating the floors and how to how to because it it was a drove her crazy. Uh, so yeah, that's a that's a real challenge. You're right. If you put in quiet, you know that's one of those words that's on the edge in the fair housing world. Uh, does quiet mean you're looking for older? Does it mean you're looking for no children? You won't accept children? Uh, if you Google uh, allowable, you know, fair housing and advertising or allowable words in rental advertising, you'll get a whole list of the okay to use words, the, the not okay to use words, and the words in the middle that are kind of be careful. Uh, there, there's, there's whole website pages about that very question about what is okay and what isn't okay in housing advertising. Very good. So we've gone through the whole process now. We have had an initial conversation probably with our applicants on the phone, showed them the unit. They love it. You give them the application. They have filled it out. You have checked them out to the nth degree over the course of something between hours and days, depending on how responsive the employer is and the uh, landlord is and so on. And now you're sitting there with two applications. You're, You're sitting there with two people that you have thoroughly checked out. How would you make a decision between those two folks? The safe way, according to fair housing law, is the first applicant gets it. If you have t- one of the standards to follow is uh, we have a scoring system. It's a twelve-point system. The first person that hits twelve is supposed to be approved. There's not even really a need for questions and decisions if they get twelve. Now, I only have people score twelve about three times a year. So it gives me some flexibility to make reasonable decisions, uh, and there, and it's not you know most of us would score twelve, but uh, our tenants are a different story. The but by fair housing law, uh, process them in the order they come in. If you okay. do that, you can't get in trouble. So fully process the first one. If they pass, offer it to them. Then fully process the second one. Yeah, and, I, and I'll be processing three at a time. But the first one that qualifies gets it, and I'll you know stop work. I don't necessarily. I don't let everything wait while I do one because some of them can take a while. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what about the other situation? I've got a vacancy. It's been vacant for two months. It is killing me. I have a mortgage payment. I, I you know coming up on month three of the mortgage payment, and I have two applicants and neither one of them passes. 
Now you get into that difficult decision. Uh, do I, you know, sub-optimization? Do I pick the best of the worst and hope for the best? Or do I keep holding out? Uh, sometimes you know, we've had a difficult economy. We've had lots, you know, because keep in mind, you can pick a great tenant and next week they go to work and get a pink slip and they're no longer a great tenant. I've lost a lot of, I've had a lot of great tenants who when one or one or both of the working adults loses their job, all of a sudden, you know, I'm in, I'm in uh, a horrible situation. And then you you make the decision that you feel that you can live with and knowing that, you know, you, you could end up in worse shape. Uh, it's a tough call sometimes. Market more. Well, you know, the best thing to do, because we said earlier, a vacant unit is better than a bad tenant. Uh, a vacant unit doesn't generally make holes in the walls and tear it up and stain the carpet and break the doors and break the cabinets and break the drawers. And get police calls and make you go to court and hang right. you up in court and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, so, but I think, I, I think that's probably the basis on which a lot of bad tenants do get a place to live is that it it's it's at least somewhat obvious to the landlord that they're that they're perhaps not ideally suited to live in one's rental property and yet i'm going on my third month of vacancy so uh instead of looking at it as all tenants are bad which i've, I've heard that many times i just can't find a good one i just have to keep taking these bad people because i can't find a good one Instead of accepting that that's the case because it is not, learn to market your units better. Have better units. I mean, well, that's I manage for a lot of owners, and my nice units, even in crummy neighborhoods, I can fill sometimes quickly. And I'll have a neighborhood. I've got a neighborhood in Cincinnati called Seven Hills. I manage I don't know ten houses up there. I've got one owner who's got several with the original wood cabinets and beat-up floors and original pink and blue bathtubs, and his units go vacant, and they sit vacant for months. I have other owners who have nicely renovated houses up there, and I can fill them you know, in weeks. So the quality of your unit has a lot to say, and you know, the challenge for some of us with this foreclosure mess is people that are buying now really cheap or able to fix them up. And those of us that have older ones that need work and are now upside down, uh, it's a challenge. It is indeed. Takeaways, screen your tenants, make sure that you actually know that what they say on their applications is true, and train yourself to be a better landlord Right. if you want to have the best possible tenants. Also, come see Jim tomorrow night at the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati meeting. That is at the corner of Reading and Seymour at the CAA building, 6 o'clock, open to the public. Main meeting is Anthony Chara coming to us all the way from Colorado to talk about how you can buy apartment buildings, even if you've never owned a property in your life. More information at CincinnatiRia.com. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.